We are here today on the Daytime Show. I'm here, Valerie Gold, with Marlene Halliday, and we're delighted to have two uh, candidates for the Scottish Parliament with us, two more candidates on the regional list for Glasgow, and they are candidates on behalf of the ALBA party. So I'd like to say hello to Elsa Gray. Hello. Hi, Elsa, and also to Michelle Ferns. Hello, ladies. Thank you very much for having us here today. We're delighted that you've found time to speak to us because less than four weeks now to the elections. So could I start perhaps, um, some of our listeners will know about you already through your past activities, uh, Business for Scotland and as a Glasgow City Councillor, Michelle. But could I come to you first, Michelle, and maybe just let listeners know a bit about yourself and what has uh, drawn you to stand as a candidate for the Alaba party here in Glasgow. I'm the youngest of uh, 13 children, seven girls and six boys, born in, in a place called Whitfield in the east end of Dundee. I stayed there, took in my, my early teens, uh, moved about a bit and then, and then settled in Glasgow when I was 16. I've lived here ever since. Initially in the the south side of Glasgow, but for the last uh, almost 28 years in the in the East End, which I, which I actually love. So I've kind of just basically swapped the East End of Dundee for the East End of Glasgow. And uh, they're, they're very, very similar. The demographic of the people and the economic backgrounds and a lot of the challenges and stuff are, are you know, are, are very similar from where I grew up. When I was 18, I've got four kids. I'm a mum with four kids, three boys and a girl, ranging from a girl's 14, a boy at 17 who's away to head off to uni. We're the first of my kids to go to university, actually, so we're uh, really proud, hopefully followed by my, my daughter, who's, who's, who's thinking that she might want to do law. Another boy at 27, and, and my oldest boy, who'll be 35 this year. So, so, so my oldest boy has got a very severe learning disability and is on the very extreme end of the autistic spectrum. I had him when I was 18. I guess the reason that I mentioned him is because so many of my choices and opportunities and I suppose uh, in, in, in terms of being able to earn, to be able to support my family and stuff, have been, I suppose, constrained by the, the, the fact that if you're an unpaid full-time carer, uh, it's very difficult to earn a living, uh, sourcing affordable childcare. The reality is I could never hope to earn what it would cost to, 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 have, to have care for my son. And like a lot of people in my position, it meant that I spent um, a lot of my 20s and my early 30s living on benefits as a single parent, fighting. Richard was diagnosed in the 80s when autism wasn't really, you know, wasn't part of everybody's yeah. consciousness of, you know, um, we, services are much better now. But um, if anybody had reference to anything, um, it was a rain man. And so they thought that everybody who was autistic was, you know, some sort of savant wandering about being some genius. And uh, Richard was definitely, my son was definitely not, was de- definitely not, um, that kind of autistic, you've lots of challenges to overcome. I suppose the reason that I mention all this is because I think that um, the link between disability and poverty, the symbiotic link between the both, the fact is if you're, you know, if you're poor, you're more likely to be disabled. 
if you're disabled, you're almost certainly most likely to be to be poorer economically for it. I started getting involved in having to fight for services, really, because they weren't they weren't available um, in the eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands. Um, Richard had to kind of go away out of the city um, for for about four days a week when he was just about when he got to about thirteen um, uh, uh, to a, to a school in Catron because there was no services available in, in in the city, and that was really hard for us for a, as a family and really really difficult for Richard as well. Those things, I suppose, I started advocating for and, and mentoring other people who were facing similar situations like me, having problems you know, maximising their benefits, um, accessing reasonable housing that was fit for their needs, um, trying to get by on benefits often with other kids, trying to get by on a couple of hours sleep a night. And I started to feel, I guess, that um, there was lots of organisations who would speak for families like mine. But when I would listen, kind of voices like Hours or people that I, you know, that I that I lived beside in, in in the community that I lived in, were were largely absent. And what you would get lots of times is like, you know, you, you know, your your voice is really valued, and the data, you know, but your lived experience is important. But you know, the data, uh, and I always just thought, you know, what is data apart from a collection of people's lived experiences? The conversation about families that the, the policies that you're developing should be developed in conversation with those families most likely to be at the sharp end of decisions made by parliamentarians on their behalf. Um, so, yes, I got involved with the, in the upcoming, in the run-up um, to the 20, 2014 referendum. I should say I'm a, a, a supported independence and I had voted SNP all my life at every opportunity. Um, we're, we're candidates for standing. And in the 80s and 90s, that wasn't always, they weren't always standing a candidate. So where I could, I voted for independence. That wasn't an easy time to be an SNP supporter back in those days, was it? No, it was, it was kind of seen in, well, well, the way I grew up in the East End of Dundee, Val Gordon Wilson was our MP. Ah, right. Okay. So it was always a kind of, it, it, was, it, was, it was a traditional vote for me. And he represented mm-hmm. Whitfield in the East End. Um, but at that time, the kind of SNP's votes were being won in sort of a rural, what were seen as kind of more affluent yeah. areas than the urban areas like Dundee and Glasgow and stuff where, where, where I moved. They weren't voting in huge numbers um, and for independence. But as being a child of Thatcher, growing up under the Thatcher years, I was also very aware, even as a young child, that decisions were being made about my life by people very far away that were only accountable to the people that that, that lived in, 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 in my country. And I always felt that was unfair. And that was probably um, what drove me to be an independent supporter from, from being a child. So I got involved in the campaign. I'd, I'd never joined a political party. I always prided myself as being an independent-minded woman. And I like to feel that, that everybody would have to vote. You know, you would have to earn my vote. At every, And that meant representing my constitutional interests but also very much my class interests. For me, they go hand in hand. I suppose what I mean by that is every political party is a broad church, I suppose, in terms of we'll have, you'll, have, you'll have different ideologies ranging across a party. Um, but in the SNP, I suppose, because we're united around a constitutional question rather than a common ideology, and as we got bigger and more successful, um, it's always difficult to kind of keep that, to keep that tight. But... Independence for me was always about being a vehicle to social justice, to being a more, to creating a, mm-hmm. a fairer and a more equal society. Independence in and of itself was meaningless unless you used it to create 
a better, you know, a level, more level playing field, as it were. So got got involved, joined the SNP, just devastated like so so much of the country when 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 we um we didn't vote yes, um and, and we didn't win. But I think after a kind of week of licking my wounds, I thought, right, okay, so the only option for me is to do everything I personally can, you know, to contribute to this to this fight. Um, started campaigning really actively, got involved with all campaigns, uh, and there was a, a fair few, as you, as you guys will remember, uh, you know, Holyrood elections, uh, uh, European referendums, Westminster elections, a few by-elections thrown in there. I went to work for um, some SNP politicians. But again, although I was very supportive of a lot of the stuff that was going on, I, I felt frustrated that I felt that... Um, what I would consider working class voices not being included, I think, enough in the conversation. Some people are uh, uncomfortable with the, with the description working class. I think it sounds old fashioned. And uh, some people have even told me, you know, there's there's no such thing as class. Which I was kind of retort, yeah, well, it might not be such a thing as class for you. But my strong feeling is that inequality is a rebranding of the word class. When we talk about class, what we're actually really talking about yeah. is inequality. And so for, for me, not so much. I don't believe that Scottish people, this will make me unpopular, but I don't think that Scottish people are inherently superior to any other people. I think that, uh, as I say, for independence for me was about creating a situation where we could truly meaningfully look at things like fair work, um, good housing, uh, you know, good early years education, actually, you know, things that, that, that maybe couldn't be delivered over a, uh, over a parliamentary term. Poverty is not going to be solved in five years by any political party. Some of these problems are generational, and it's about kind of putting in the foundations, knowing that maybe you'll not see the benefit, or maybe even your kids will not see the benefit, much like independence in the 80s and the 90s, uh, when the SNP were building that support, but, but that it would come you know, eventually in putting those, those building blocks in at the beginning, those foundations in, and equality-proofing those policies right at the beginning. And that's something that you've worked very hard for during your time as a counsellor, no doubt. I did. I, I, I started, I, I was quite surprised at um, my uh, decision even to stand for council. I'd always thought that um, elected members were people who definitely went to university uh, you know, definitely, um, I don't know, I, I suppose it's a, it's not an unusual thing, I suppose, amongst working class people to assume that the voice of authority and intelligence and reason is delivered in a certain way. It's, you know, people don't say I and they don't say the mora, they say tomorrow, but, but I speak like that. Lots of people in Scotland speak like that. I think one of the very strengths of Alabama Zaliban, what we're trying to create when we say we're trying to create a more diverse parliament, especially with 50%, uh, 56% women, or women from a huge, you know, a very diverse range of backgrounds is, uh, yes, we've got brilliant lawyers and we've got economists and we've got people um, very experienced in project management and, and uh, uh, what, what you don't have is, I suppose, a lot of people like me who have came from a background like mine, um, you know, didn't really, left school very early, uh, went to work when I could, usually in low-skilled, low-paid jobs to, to, to support my family. 
getting engaged in politics right up to the run, uh, the run up to the referendum and starting to realise that actually that, that my voice was relevant. Lots of people thought the way that I, lots of people lived the way that I had had to live uh, and my family had to live. And uh, it was right that those voices were heard because those kind of voices are massively underrepresented in Parliament. And I think for, for communities like the one I live in and represent, they feel that politics is something that happens to them rather than with them. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute, particularly to the equality aspect, because that's something we wanted to ask you about. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. Listen to you, Michelle, you're so eloquent about It's really great hearing that. And can, I just, I'm reluctant to interrupt you because I'm, I'm engrossed, but I'm conscious we've got Elsa here as well. And I thought absolutely. maybe should, I'll come back to you in a wee minute if that's okay. So Elsa, could I bring you in as well? Um, and also maybe like if you'd like to do the same, just like, uh, obviously, uh, Michelle has told us a, a huge amount there, which is fantastic. But I wonder if you'd like to tell us a bit also about your background and what you bring to the the Alba Party as a as a candidate. For sure, um, same city, but but different backgrounds. It's it's fair to say, which is something that myself and Michelle have spoken about much over the past couple of weeks, that we've got to know each other and and become friends, close friends. You know, I was brought up, born in Glasgow, brought up in Glasgow, but um, was adopted as a baby. My biological father was a Native American working in the, the US nuclear submarine base in Faz Lane. And after a short time in care, I was adopted into a truly incredible family. Um, my dad was a lawyer and a labour politician. And my mother was a child psychologist. And um, we had a you know, we did have a fantastic life. When I told my father that I was following him into law, um, he made me read all of the, the high-profile miscarriages of justice, cases that he could come across so that I could understand that the law could be an ass. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, my, my parents, you know, I went to Faz Lane, you know, to to the, the base where the women were demonstrating against the nuclear submarines and actually not knowing about my, you know, my yeah. family background at that time was a part of it. <laughs> don't know if you remember that, uh, you know, the, you know, particularly in the 80s, the demonstrations that, that, that were going on there. Yeah, and apparently the nuclear warheads have been increased by stealth recently as well. So, I mean, it's, a, it's just as topical um, now. Um, so I went on to to go into law. I followed my father into law. I wanted to emulate him. I absolutely adored him and uh, followed in his footsteps. And I probably shouldn't have done because I was dyslexic and there was, a, you know, not being biologically related. There was so different actually in makeup. Um, but I worked really, really hard, uh, had to work really hard because I didn't have his natural talent and, and ended up uh, becoming a corporate lawyer and moving down to London. Um, because that's really where all the jobs were. They'd done away with the Scottish Stock Exchange and really you moved to London if that's what you wanted to do. Mm. Um, and after about 10 years down there, five, five years, seven years down there, I then moved up uh, to work for a FTSE 100 company in Perthshire, a utility company. 
And my job was um, corporate law, but also corporate governance, advising board directors on their legal responsibilities. And it was there that it kind of dawned on me um, over the years that our economic system is rigged in favour of large corporates. And that this really doesn't need to be the case. We've got an economy in the UK that's incredibly neoliberal and it dates back to obviously the time of Margaret Thatcher and um, her love affair with Milton Friedman. And that's the economy that we've ended up with. And the more that I looked into it, the more that I realised that it, that it really didn't need to be like that, that there were plenty of countries around the world that were pursuing economy that benefited all, where there was opportunities for people that, that cared about whether the economy worked for the people rather than just profits. And it was something that I was very alive to dealing with the corporate governance, um, you know, in the annual report that that's not the way that our economy worked. And by focusing solely on profits, it, it, it subjugated the, you know, the, the rights of everyone else, you know, employees, customers, suppliers, society, the environment, all other stakeholders um, came second. Um, to, to the pursuit of profits for shareholders. And I believe that's why we've ended up being one of the richest countries, but also one of the most unequal countries. Yeah. yeah. I'm struck by listening to both here. You're both like so interesting, but so different. And that, that seems to me a real strength for a political party, as you say, to have, you know, diverse candidates. So would you like to home in a wee bit more for the listeners on what led you to join Alba as as a candidate? Elsa, if I ask you first, you know, what, I mean, it's obviously a big step to join a brand new party just starting out. It's a sort of leap into the unknown. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was a big step for me, not least because um, I was brought up in a family with a, with a father that was in politics and vowed that I would never, ever, ever enter politics. That was one thing I was absolutely certain about. But, you know, I realised that, you know, the SNP, the lack of priority that they were giving Scottish independence and the lack of urgency with which they were pursuing it um, was something that, that that really pushed me into, in, into joining the first ever political party that I've ever become a member of. And, and not just joining, but actually putting myself up as a candidate. Um, I think that the we have so little time, so little time to to get our economy on track and in a way that we can deal with the ravages of the last 40 years of inequality, where we can deal with, you know, the outcome of Brexit and, and what's going to happen with the Internal Markets Act now, which is taking even more powers away from the Scottish Parliament. I think I referred to it as constitutional sabotage, you know, in a previous interview. We have so little time. To, to, to address these issues uh, that I, th- I felt that it was important to step forward for the for the party. Thanks very much. Um, and yourself, Michelle, I mean, you, you were an elected office bearer in the SNP, so that also, it's a big step for Elsa, also a very big step for yourself. A huge step, Val, and a, and a huge decision um, for myself as a single parent, um, walking away from um, a job and a wage um, in these very uncertain times was a, a huge commitment. I wouldn't be surprised to, to, to hear that I, I spoke over with my kids and stuff before, you know, I, I made the decision. 
Um, for me, it was really simple. You had asked me earlier on about my, my job in the council. R- rather quickly, I, I became convener for, for workforce, which is, um, I suppose, political oversight over over everybody that works for Glasgow City Council, which is, at last count, just, just a couple of hundred shy of 30,000 people. Massive responsibility, but I have to say I absolutely adored my job and all the people that I, that, that I worked with, um, you know, be that... Um, the officers that I worked with, my colleagues and the trade unions, feeling like it was a very good job in the in the, in the way that you felt that you were really tackling. Maybe not massively global issues, but small practical steps that made working life easier for people, um, especially those people with vulnerable characteristics that had been, or who were carers and stuff, who had been locked out of um, employment, meaningful employment, because, because other plates they had to keep spinning and very quickly so so I had just taken over um th- that role when the I was part of the administration that had uh, settled the, the equal pay claims for thousands of women across Glasgow yeah I want to make it clear here because it's been a it's been an issue of some contention here I've never claimed um responsibility for negotiating and delivering equal pay. I was part of a a team an administration, a historic SNP administration in Glasgow, who had we decided very quickly when we were elected that unlike the, the administrations before us that spent 10 years fighting women's claims, that we were going to do everything we could to facilitate the claims and find a plan that worked for Glasgow, because half a billion pounds is a lot of money um, uh, to, to deliver. And I was very proud to be part of that team. But what I would say strongly, Val, to you is the people that deserve the most credit for delivering that deal is the women mm-hmm. themselves, the women and those supporters who refused to go away for 10 years yes. while they were knocked back. And I think poorly, poorly served by administrations, like a whole host of people. Um, but those women have every right to be proud. I am proud. I, I represent a lot of them in my constituency that got life changing life-changing awards that was uh I've had people women tell me that it's the first time they've been able to take their kids on holiday in their life had other women tell me that they were able to put a deposit down for their kids for their first house or for their grandkids um no 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 money squirreled away in accounts in the Cayman Islands money that's spent here in the East End although I've got to say there's there's been more than the two or three hot tubs that have popped up on Google Maps I'm sure weren't in the East End before but um all well and good What's became really important to me when I worked on the equal pay thing and then and then bringing the Cordia women into the council um, and, you know, harmonising their terms and conditions with, with, with employees of the council, which I, I think was a great piece of work. It moved me on to the, the next huge piece of work, which was de- delivering a job evaluation scheme and a new pay and grading scheme that had a quality built into the very foundations and the structures of it. And that meant a big conversation of looking around what is fair work? What is equal pay? What is work of equal value? Does the work that a care worker do, is that is that of equal value to a man who's emptying bins? Is that of equal value to a project? It's, it's about the whole, open up the whole conversation about what is essential work and how we value that, especially the parts of essential work that are delivered massively by women, which are caring roles, um, which whether that's in the home or whether they're in their work, have been devalued as not being worth as much financially. And that's where the conversation needs to start, not just for women, for everybody. You know, um, 
it's the things that's the things that drove me into politics and the things that keep and the things that made me go to Alba um, and made me feel the underlying and underpinning thing for this is you should never forget is the desire for independence and why you desire independence. A devolved government will only ever be able to mitigate against the worst effects of Tory policy in Westminster. And, and I believe it's you know going to be a Tory government in Westminster for a long, long, long time to come. Scotland doesn't vote for that. Mm, mm. Um, and it certainly doesn't vote to make itself poorer. And whilst I have worked hard as part of uh, my, my previous party to deliver um, some of those those policies and, 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 and looking at work, mitigating the worst effects, we're never going to be able to meaningfully challenge them in a devolved government. We need yeah. the powers and all the levers over tax and spend. Yeah, I mean, listening to what you've been saying, um, Michelle, I mean, I'm, I'm, sus- I'm suspecting that you're probably being support of policies like universal basic income, applying well-being economics into, you know, government decision making. And those are exactly the kind of policies that, well, certainly universal basic income could not happen um, until we're independent, given that there's absolutely no chance that Westminster will ever do it. So am I right? Are those the sort of policies that, you know, you would support? Marlene, it's almost as if we've met each other before. <laughs> yes, uh, I am massively in favour of a universal basic income, not surprisingly. Why am I in favour of that? Because it's, it's a bit like we were talking about before, about inequality and class and the labels that we put on people and how people are uncomfortable uh, with, those, with those labels. What universal basic income is, means to me is about delivering dignity. I don't want to be referring families to food banks, you know, families that are both working. How how abhorrent is it that we live in a country where you, you, you have families with two, two, two parents in work that can't afford, to, they have to decide between uh, putting money on their, their, their electricity meter or buying a dinner, yeah. uh, you know, uh, buying a pair of shoes or, 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 you know, some disaster happens like your washing machine breaks down, you know, things that are, they're a real crisis for a lot of families who are hanging on by their fingernails. It's about dignity. It's about, you know, UBIs. I think that the, the pandemic has has brought into sharp focus the inequalities that, that exist, not just across our country, but even in, in cities like Glasgow, you know, the West End compared to the East End, you know, the, 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 the disparity across the city is huge. Yeah, yeah. But the, the hope that, sorry, I know I'm going on, but just this we point about is that, that I think during the pandemic and the hope that the vaccine has given us, demonstrates the value of a socialised healthcare system, right, when it's free to the point of all. There's a vaccine available, everybody gets it. doesn't matter what economic bracket you, you, you live in or what part of the city. If you need it and you're vulnerable, you get it. The same principle applies to UBI. If, if we're able to provide a socialised healthcare system, there's no reason why we can't preside, provide or preside over in an independent Scotland uh, a socialised welfare system that says, right, here's a safety net that nobody gets to fall below, right? Um, there'll always be a society where some people have more and some people have, but here's a, we won't let you fall below this standard. Mm-hmm. You're entitled to food, PD. You're entitled yeah, to... Yeah, yes, and indeed. T- and I mean, it would take people away out of that situation where, you know, if you're only a week's wage packet away from 
having to use a food bank or or as you say something like the you know the washing machine breaks down that's a that puts people's lives that puts an incredible amount of stress in people's lives and to be able to do something to mitigate that um would just be a fantastic um reason to for us to be independent and build that kind of society well the um, main reason i would say marlene is to build yeah. that kind of, we yeah. talk about a lot about what kind of society we want to be well well the power for that lies in our own hands and that we need a super majority and a and, and, and a huge pro-independence vote to send pro-independence parliamentarians to the Scottish Parliament so that a, a Westminster government, they can't ignore a Scottish Parliament the way they can ignore one party. Um, I think if the Scottish Parliament is strengthened by pro-independence voices, that can only be good for the representation of people of Scotland. Yeah, so, uh, so that, I mean, you're mentioning, you've just mentioned the supermajority, which is certainly a, was a hashtag sort of slogan I mean, that's it's being... Um, Used a lot actually in within the Alba Party, isn't it? Although of course the Afi um, uh, Party talked about that as well. I mean, I know it's only just over two weeks, is it, since the Alba yeah. Party was launched? But how are you feeling now yeah. about how the the campaign's going? Really energized, to be honest, and really hopeful. Um, I think um, Alex Salmond has mentioned before about a kind of what we've talked about in our, in, in in the Alba Party and amongst the candidates is very much feeling that spirit of 2014. It doesn't feel like a kind of top-down campaign. It feels like we're giving voice to what lots and lots of people are feeling, which is frustration with the length of the process of, of, of actually becoming independent. We are no... Um, I, I understand the arguments that people, people make about um, a majority for the SNP, and in fact, the ALBA party is promoting that you give your first vote on the constituency list yeah. to the SNP. What we would like to see is a, is a, is a parliament strengthened by as many pro-independence voices as possible. Um, I suppose um, what the super what the supermajority offers us, as I've said before, is that I think speaking with the voice of a Scottish parliament puts really much more weight. We've had lots of discussion about, you know, Boris Johnson won't be able to ignore the will of the Scottish... Well, Boris Johnson has been ignoring the will of the Scottish people for a long, long time, Marlene. Yes. For me, uh, the best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour. Now, I don't need to be a psychic to see that Boris Johnson is not going to give Scotland to Section 30 because Boris Johnson tells us once a week himself, <laughs> he's not going to give us a section 30. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Can I just bring Elsa in? Elsa, how are you feeling, you know, about how things are going so far in this campaign? Again, enormously energised. Um, we are all being involved in the, you know, in the drafting of policies. Um, sorry, we're all being involved in the, you know, the drafting of policies. We're all being included in that. And, and that's incredibly exciting because we've all come from very different backgrounds, de very different life experiences and coming at things from, a, you know, from a different perspective. And it's it, it's producing great policies um, because we are viewing our policies as, as, as you would. We were an independent um, country. And I think the SNP, when they get into power, we're talking about having, you know, an inclusive growth economy. That's one of the reasons why I supported them and why I agreed to go on the board of an economic development agency. 
because of these inclusive, inclusive growth um, policies. But they've rode back in them. They then had the Sustainable Growth Commission report, which is akin to a banker's char charter, to be quite honest. And the only way that we can achieve the policies that Michelle was talking about is, is through independence, through achieving a supermajority. I ask him, you're both very strong women. It's great to see Alba, Alba has got um, more than half of the candidates are women. I think you, of all the political parties, I think you've got the highest percentage of women candidates, about 56. And I was interested to see at the weekend, um, there was a women's conference um, with different themes. Um, interestingly for me, me and Marlene, one of those was older women, which doesn't often get much airtime or publicity. Um, so um, I wonder, um, we'll come to you first this time, Elsa, and then to Michelle. Um, did you want to like say a little bit about how you found the Women's Conference at the weekend? Um, deeply moving is probably the way that I would describe it. I've not been a, as close to many of these issues as, uh, as, as, as many of the women that are, that are candidates, you know, within the ALBA party. Um, and so I was sitting and observing and, 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 and listening to what they had to say and the wonderful speakers that they had at the conference. And it was an open, friendly, safe place where many women whose voices had not been heard for an awful long time were being held were being heard in a in a sympathetic manner Michelle I don't know whether you'd want to add on anything to that absolutely I would say um everything that Ilsa says there and probably add on yes um inspired um moved and exhilarated I think the women who were there very much fed off that positive energy of, um, and I've seen a lot of comments and stuff on social media, but what I've yet to see is any negative comment from any woman who was there. All I've heard from women who were there that they, they, they found it a supportive, warm space. Um, you specifically asked about older women, and I think that's a really key point to, to, to raise, because I think older women's voices are often cancelled um, out, out of the conversation, which seems a for a pragmatic view, a massive waste of resources. I probably would count myself in my 50s as being an older woman myself these days, but still being the youngest of 13, my, my sister and brother still refer to me as the bearing, which is highly right. annoying, given that I've got a grandchild of my own. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yes, I, I, I think that we, we're all a collection of our lived experiences and... and, and <laughs> You know, the idea that, that we've got these older women with a wealth and, and, and such, a, as Ailes has mentioned, such a diverse background of skills and experiences that they can bring to the conversation and to our policies and to the development of our policies. Um, it was incredible that so many women were shocked by the fact that we'd made a space for older women to have a say. You know, that just seems to me a, a given. Certainly my big sisters would, would all agree. I don't know what I'm talking about until I've spoken to them first. <laughs> um, and then I noticed that on the, you know, on the back of that, that the, the your party has brought out a, a policy statement on women inequalities. Uh, have you got any comments to make about that at all, either of you? Um, so do you want to go first? Elsa? 
No, I can't remember Tasmina's quote, which I just think encapsulates it so wonderfully, uh, Michelle. I think that's all I would have to say. And of course, at the top of my dyslexic brain, I don't remember what Tasmina's quote is, but it's just <laughs> encap encapsulates the whole day and everything. So I wish I had it at my fingertips. I've got a statement here um, from Tasmina. The very end. It's at the very end. It says, Alaba acknowledges that no single protected characteristic is more virtuous or more worthy of recognition and safeguarding than another. They are all fundamentally important, each on their own and as a collective. I'm not sure if that's the one you meant. Absolutely. I couldn't say it better myself. And completely non-controversial, you'd think. On on my social media this morning, um, the Women in Equalities um, policy statement popped up and uh, I, I read it and I th what, what I thought was, well, what's said there is, is reasonable, it's equitable, um, and actually it's also in uh, sync with what most people in Scotland feel about that whole area. I'm, I mean, it is going back a bit, but it was June last year, there was a panel-based poll where people got asked their quite, um, specific question about what they thought the definition of a woman was and so there was two choices um, six, 66% in general came out for the traditional definition of the word woman and yet with this being this whole fankle really about not being able to have a civilised conversation uh, about, about the thing so I was quite pleased when I saw that declaration because maybe that's a start in a way of being able to kind of engage in a more reasonable conversation because nobody wants anyone's human rights to be trodden on or, you know, put into second place or anything like that. But it just needs to be a good conversation about it. And I think so. one of the one of the things that, that was raised at the conference was that recently we've had so much heat around the issue, but very little light. And I think, as you say, the lack of discourse about it is one of the key issues. And also there's been an attack on freedom of speech with people um, accusing others of being all sorts of things which they're patently not. And I think that freedom of speech is so important. And we need to shine a light and we need to have discussions and we need to be accepting of, 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 of everyone. But to listen, we need to listen. I think what Ailsa says is, is, is absolutely 100% correct in terms of nothing that's in that document should be, should be controversial. The main statement is, a, is that, you know, rights are not like a cake that, that, that run out. You know, there's, 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 rights, there's enough rights for everyone. We can live in a Scotland where everyone has rights and nobody's rights are promoted at the expense of others. I, I, I think this is just sort of, this is what frustrates me is I think we get the, we approach the argument for them wrong, from the wrong end. It's the oldest trick in the book, divide and conquer, you know, make poor people think it's other poor people that are making them poor. You know, it's, it's benefit strangers, it's, it's immigrants, it's, it's, it's people that are, that's, that's, not, that's not my experience of living in Scotland. It's not my experience of my neighbours and my family and my friends. Uh, but that's not who we are. I think what's been what we were hearing at the women's conference, which was was difficult to hear and emotional for some women to share, was that for a long time that women have felt excluded from the conversation about what it is to be a woman and how that impacts on your life, and women have felt shut down by that. And that's that's not okay. That shouldn't be okay. 
for anybody in government to feel like half of the population feels that they're not allowed to speak up. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to agree. And that's why one of, one of our, our, our um, aims in our, our policy um, statement is to say that we support a citizens panel. We want to have a conversation. We want to hear from everyone. We're excluding no one from that conversation. We want a safe space where everybody can bring their opinions to the table and we thrash it like we always do. We, we, we thrash it out. We come to what we think is a reasonable position where we feel we're providing a safety net but for everyone. And that does mean everyone. Nobody's excluded from equality um, in, in, in Alaba's policy statement. Nobody should feel themselves um, to be excluded. But having a conversation is where it starts. It's how, we, it's how we put checks and balances and to make sure that we are taking a temperature check to make sure that we are actually representing the people that we're supposed to be representing, all of them. Would, I would wonder if either of both of you have maybe got a brief final word that you'd like to say just about what lies ahead in the next few weeks. I mean, really, we're hoping that despite the mainstream media not covering any of the candidates, at least in a positive light, and certainly anything that we have to say, that the message gets out there that we support an inclusive world for for everyone that that we're pursuing a Scottish independence that is for everyone where there are opportunities for all and that the only way that we can achieve this is with a supermajority a pro-independence supermajority because then Boris Johnson is not facing down the SNP he's facing down a pro-independence parliament that's been put in power by the Scottish nation and I think that's really the point that I would like to get across. And I hope that people vote for Alva in the, the list vote in Glasgow. I think I started off by saying that I, I, I believed in um, and supported independence all of my life. I feel now in 2021, it's more urgent than it's ever been. I think on the back of many challenges that are coming on from Brexit, from the from the internal market bill, from the the... the, the the noise is coming from Westminster about dismantling devolution, the very likely austerity max, the political choices that will be made in Westminster for how we recover from the pandemic. These things have made independence more urgent than it's ever been. I don't think that we can afford to wait. And I think that delivering a supermajority in the Scottish Parliament, if you're someone who supports independence, it's the best and quickest way to put the pressure on the Westminster government to say that Scotland needs to go its own way, make its own choices. Um, if And as I say, I, I hope that people who hear this, who are pro-independence, will consider giving the Glasgow candidates their, their vote on the list. Thank you. And thank you very much to you guys for, for giving us the time to talk. You're welcome. So we're very pleased on Indie Live Radio today to have Alex Hammond. Hello, Alec. Hello. Hello, Valerie. And I'm also here with my co-presenter, Marlene Halliday. Yep. Hello. Hi there. Really good to have you, Alec. 
Alex Salmon needs no introduction, former First Minister of Scotland, very much in the news at the moment um, as the leader of the brand new Alaba party. Alec, could I start off by asking you, the launch of Alaba, <laughs> a brand new party led by yourself, a former First Minister, has had a definite big impact on Scottish politics and a very hectic start. How do you think the campaign is going? Well, I think it's going great. I mean, you're right. I mean, don't worry about the pronunciation, Valerie. I mean, I have the same problem myself. <laughs> just, I mean, all my Gaelic friends have been phoning me up saying Alaba, 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 Alaba. I know. I've eventually managed to get it right, or more or less right, but it took me a while. I think it's gone great. I think we're about to celebrate our third anniversary. That means we're three weeks old. Three weeks old, yeah. <laughs> and we've got 5,000 members, a lot more than the Liberal Democrats. We're closing in on the Tories and the Greens. Uh, we've got twice as many MPs as the Scottish Labour Party. Two, they've got one. Uh, and we've got more councillors, I think, than the Greens now. Uh, so, it's, and above all, we've got 32 brilliant candidates, the length of bread for Scotland, 18 women, 14 men, who are going to carry the Alapa banner in these elections. So I think it's gone It's gone like a Gaelic song, which is a good thing. Arlene, I think you had a question about... I, I'm, I'm sorry, I was just sitting chuckling there about the, getting the pronunciation right, Alec. I've been doing Duolingo Gaelic during lockdown, so, you know, um, I haven't even got the grasp of how to say Alaba yet. I'm, refer to, I'm, I'm deferring to you, Marlene. Okay. <laughs> of course. So... Also, I my, my, my big Gaelic teacher has always been my Gaelic confidant, has always been Angus Brendan McNeil. But then, yeah. of course, as I, I subsequently found out that Barra Gaelic is different pronunciation from other Gaelic, so I, I, I don't think that helps me a lot much. Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of Gaelic appears on Duolingo. Just to carry on, um, so, yeah, I can understand it's been a hectic start and it's only three weeks in. Just to get... So to help people who are who are listening in, you know, who may not be social uh, media activists, what of Alba's policies distinguish it from other pro-indie parties? Well, on the independence question, a sense of urgency uh, would be, Marlene, would be the main thing. I mean, in the election campaign thus far, I mean, Nicola has said that a referendum 2023, maybe later, uh, the Green Party launched a manifesto today. They, they seem, as far as I can see, to be talking about 2026. Alapa say, in a month's time, the Scottish Parliament should pass a resolution instructing the Scottish Government to open negotiations on independence with the United Kingdom government. No messing, no further delay, no prevarication. Let's get on with it. The biggest distinguishing feature that Alapa offer is the sense of urgency mm. on independence. I don't see this stuff about, oh, we'll wait till after the pandemic. This is nonsense. This is a, a unionist agenda to try and tell us that independence is secondary to a, the emergency of the economic uh, implications of the pandemic. If we believe in independence, we believe that a new world is going to come out of the post-pandemic era. There's going to have to be changes, changes to... Well, challenges in the economy of a profound scale. There's going to be changes in terms of social inequalities, change in terms of uh, environmental responsibility, right. about how humanity copes with being on the planet. If we don't make these changes, incidentally, we'll go back through this again and again and again. Now, either we believe that an independent Scotland can make a contribution to some of these things. Obviously, we can't cure them or solve them, but we can make a contribution 
And we believe that an independent Scotland will make a more positive contribution than a Scotland which has these decisions made by Boris Johnson. And yeah. if we believe that, then there is no argument for delaying initiatives on independence till after the pandemic. Incidentally, after the pandemic could be many, many years. Nicholas certainly used the phrase after the, the COVID crisis, hasn't she? And that kind of leaves it a bit open. I mean, that might be oh, as soon as we get rid of the restrictions or down to you know level one or level two. It gives her a bit of a leeway for, for, for the timing, and that may be prudent from, from her point of view. But, you know, you said that it plays into unionist hands, but actually some tactics coming out of unionists at the moment are to, are to say, no, make us have a referendum during while it's still happening because they think that will give them a better chance. Uh, I think one thing all of us in the independence movement have to be aware of is uh, uh, the variety of briefing from the unionist media about what the unionists might be planning or not planning on independence. I conducted, and I'll be quite open about this, a disinformation campaign with David Cameron. Yeah, and I was, I was feeding him different information. In order to drag him to the negotiating table in 2011 and 2012, I set out to make him believe that I was going to organise a freeway referendum in Scotland as a plebiscite. Right? Now, you're smiling. Uh, I know for a fact uh, that Downing Street came to believe that that was my plan. Mm. I would tell you all of the instruments and devious uh, manoeuvres I made to make them believe it. But I'm, I, did... I'm, I'm, I will just say I'm just smiling because of the cunningness of it. That's why I was smiling. Well, but eventually, David Cameron thought he'd had a great negotiating tribe by persuading me reluctantly to accept a single-choice referendum, yes or no, and handed me control of the ballot, the timing, the question, the franchise, everything I could possibly want. Because I now confess to all independents, to supporters listening to this broadcast, I always wanted to have a yes-no question for independence. I wanted independence to be on the yes side. I wanted the timing to be after the Commonwealth Games, and I wanted to extend the franchise to 16 and 17 year olds and European citizens. I wanted to do all of these things. And because I managed to make David Cameron believe that I was trying to manipulate a freeway preference ballot organised by the Scottish Parliament, that was one of the things, one of the things that convinced them to go for a, a yes, no, and allow the Scottish Parliament to, to organise it. So in politics, sometimes you have to create a smoke screen. And believe me, the idea that unionists are about to concede the immediate referendum is one such smoke screen from unionism. Uh, they, you'll have to, we'll have to drag a referendum or another electoral test because I am not of the view that a Section 30 referendum is the holy grail of electoral tests in which the independence movement should be judged. I negotiated the Section 30 with David Cameron because I thought that was the best route forward for Scotland. Uh, but uh, we are going to uh, need resolve, determination and statecraft in order to drag another electoral test out of Westminster. And the Alipa Party's fundamental claim in this election is that we are far more likely to do that with a supermajority of MSPs supporting independence than we are with a narrow majority of SNP MPs, a much, much higher chance of Boris Johnson having to back now. Yep. 
And I have a question that you are standing on the list in the northeast of Scotland, and this question is it's quite a, a specific issue, and it's particularly important to a lot of people in the northeast, and it's to do with oil and gas workers. But it's not really economic; it's more of a public health issue. Now, at the moment. Oil and gas workers returning from often very arduous periods working abroad where before they were allowed to self-isolate at home. But they're now required to self-isolate in managed quarantine in hotels. Now, despite the very high costs, which some workers have to pay themselves, the conditions they're in, and I know this personally, I know all the details from a family member, the conditions are very poor. Now, the Scottish government say that this situation is under constant review, but it is currently impacting really significantly on the mental health of not just the workers, but also their families, to the extent that some of them are not even coming home in between their their periods of duty anymore. And um, I wonder if you were aware of this, and if you are, what do you think could be done? Yeah, I'm aware of <laughs> And I think the conditions in which people quarantine, incidentally, I'm not quarrelling with quarantine regulations because uh, I understand totally uh, the danger of variants on COVID uh, and coronavirus uh, uh, escaping into uh, the population uh, in yep. Scotland. But I would quarrel substantially with the conditions in which people are being uh, spending the quarantine. There's no reason for this. There's no excuse for it. It's penny-pinching of the nth degree. I happen to know there is sumptuous hotel accommodation in Aberdeen available. It's closed at the present moment. It's locked up. Uh, available to be purchased for a reasonable cost. And, and that accommodation is there and available. And it is outrageous, the conditions that people are being forced to spend their quarantine in. Uh, when such accommodation for a marginal uh, additional cost would be available, <clears throat> would have all the, the mod cons and facilities. Believe me, I know the hotels are closed. I opened some of them, incidentally. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, the idea that these hotels should be closed when, for a very, very marginal uh, increase in the cost of accommodation, you could put people into proper accommodation, which would be far more fitting. And indeed, we'd have... Uh, uh, facilities which would allow family visitations and things under controlled conditions. Uh, I, I think it's quite disgraceful. It's, mm. uh, it's uh, you know, one of the troubles I've got about this whole business is when you start to drill down, I, I think many of the decisions have been totally unfathomable as to what's going on. Uh, the, many of the regulations are impossible to understand, never mind decipher. You know, I, I've been trying over the last few weeks to, to try and work out how you can take photographs in an election campaign in the middle of a pandemic. And frankly, I still don't understand. I'm trying my best at every photocall to make sure people are socially spaced in a proper way and all the rest of it. Uh, but actually, when we've got yeah. to the stage, even the Deputy First Minister of Scotland doesn't know when he's breaking the regulations. Uh, you know, that is not how you regulate uh, people in a society which is a public health emergency. You regulate people in a society by saying, look, face masks should be compulsory all the time for everyone. No exceptions except for medical conditions, right? Uh, not, oh, you might wear them inside but not outside or upstairs but not downstairs. That is rubbish. 
the regulations have to be clear and easily understood. This idea, oh, we're now relaxing so that there's instead of the, so many people in so many family groups, you can have five people in six family groups or, or whatever it might be. None of that is meaningful to people. You have to give clear, distinct direction. Uh, and the case in point, yes, of course, you can quarantine people for the very good reason that there are variants of this uh, virus which are extremely dangerous. We don't want them into the Scottish population. But if people are in quarantine, they should be quarantined in proper, decent conditions, as indeed refugees should be held in proper, decent conditions as well in Scottish society. And it's not good enough for people after the event, when a tragedy happens, to say, oh, my goodness, I didn't realise things were like this. You know, it's time to do something about it now. And, you know, if I've got any influence in the matter, come three weeks' time, for my constituents in the North East Scotland, I'll be doing something about it right away. Even if I have to go and open up the requisite hotels myself, uh, that people can stay in a reasonable comfort. Can, can we go back to some of the terms that um, are used in the Alaba Party? So this this term, supermajority, so I don't, I don't know who coined it, but it's certainly come to the fore since Alaba launched, and it's very prominent on your website. When you use the word supermajority, I mean, what do you mean? I mean, how... How many MSPs is a supermajority? Well, it just depends on the degree of super. I mean, what it means is 80, 90 or more MSPs. Take that poll this afternoon, the Business for Scotland poll, which shows yes. Alapa breaking through with five seats. Now, you know, that's not the limit of ambitions or the summit of our ambitions. But that poll, if you add up the SNP with 63, the Greens with 10, Alapa with five, that gives you 78. Now, if you do a simple arithmetic calculation, which I'm quite good at, then that means there is a yes majority of 27 in the Scots Parliament and, and a total in these calculations of 78 independent supporting MSPs. Now, my contention is quite, and incidentally, I think we can do much better than that. I, I think we can get to 80 or 90 quite easily if people just vote with their heads. The independent supporters vote with their heads, we'll go to 80 or 90. Uh, and the reason for that is, well, let's take the northeast of Scotland. In 2016, there were 137,000 SNP votes on the list who elected precisely zero, nil plan, MSPs on the list. Why? Because the SNP won all the constituencies. So got nothing on the list. If half of these people vote for Alpha, half, then all four Alpha candidates will be elected. And there'll be four more independents supporting MSPs and in at least six out of the eight regions of Scotland, exactly the same thing prevails. In central Scotland, for example, it's 129,000 wasted SNP votes last time round. Uh, so that is the chance, that is the opportunity. And I can tell you from personal experience, there's a world of difference in negotiating progress for Scotland or independence with a large majority of independents supporting MSPs at your back than there is if you try to do it when you've got a narrow majority, or in my case, no majority at all. In 2007 to 2011, I had 49 MSPs supporting independence in the Scottish Parliament of 129. There was 47 SNP, there was one Green, the other Green was a delightful man, incidentally, a lovely guy, Robin Harper, but he was totally against independence, totally against independence, and I had Margaret MacDonald. So that made 49, right? Uh, and the rest were all unionists. <laughs> so even getting progress for Scotland yeah. 
was was difficult because I mean we did lots of other good things, you know, we built bridges and bypasses and borders, railways, and we had free prescriptions, and we had the put the bridge tools off and, and we introduced free education. Now that wasn't bad. But we couldn't get any further in independence because of all the unionists in the Scottish Parliament. And we're caught in a kind of a pincer movement between Westminster and the unionists. Now, even when we got the majority in 2011, it was a devil of a job to persuade Cameron to agree to the referendum. Now, if I'd been sitting with 90 MSPs or 80 MSPs supporting independence, and I'd have been able to say, listen, you're dealing with me. How would you like to deal with these uh, zealots in the Scottish Parliament who are advocating, pushing me towards independence? I mean, if I was presented as being the, you know, the person leading the charge, as I had to lead the charge. But yeah. you, want, you want to be in a negotiating position where you come across as the person who's responding to the overwhelming desire of the Parliament. So yeah, yeah. So, 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 so that sounds like you don't have any, you don't hold any truck with the argument that you get back again. It's from unionist circles, that, well, or or even actually also from the SNP itself that there needs to be a, an absolute majority of the SNP on its own to be taken seriously in Westminster. That that obviously you don't sound like you have any truck with that. I think it's rubbish, uh, and I know it's rubbish from uh, my own personal experience. I know why the SNP, I don't, I don't actually know why they're saying it. Well, I do. Political parties yeah, yeah. get rivalries. Can, I mean, look, I have to laugh sometimes at the, at the comments from people who say how loyal they are to the Scottish National Party. I, I spent 40 years in the SNP. I led it for 20 years. I, I think I know and understand the Scottish National Party. I love the Scottish National Party as it happens. Uh, but I learned a lesson, a very hard lesson, because I made a mistake in 2013. I, I thought, because the SNP had done the heavy lifting in the, in the independence cause in electoral terms since 1932, I, I had to come to regard the independence movement in Scotland as personified by the Scottish National Party. Uh, and because I love the Scottish National Party, so much, that's probably understandable, but it was a mistake. And I'll tell you why it was a mistake, because although we got the SNP into a position where it was dominant in Scottish politics, we won the 2011 election with an overall majority. We didn't shift the dial in Scottish independence. And we went into that referendum campaign with independence at 30% in the polls. And they only started to shift but the grassroots movement in the high summer of 2014 started to catch a light. And instead of being the one party political voice for independence, there was a whole variety of movements for independence. There was women for independence, there was Greens for independence, there was Fairmoors for independence, there was Fishers for independence, there was Dishon for independence, there was Dakin for independence, there was Gales for independence. There were people who could pronounce Alapa for independence. There were lots and lots of folk for independence. And that joyous, multifarious, wonderful expression of positive sentiment was what took Scotland forward and took the Yes campaign into the lead from June 2014 to September 2014, only to fall back when we were fooled and conned and dialed by the vow. A vow, incidentally, was composed, I don't hold him any ill will, you know, the person that wrote the vow is now working for the SNP. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know. I mean, we must all allow Damascian conversions, 
but you'll pardon me if I have a certain degree of scepticism <laughs> if whether that conversion is any more than skin deep. Mm. So we were gulled by the vow, the promise of a powerhouse parliament, if only we all voted no. And then when uh, Scotland unfortunately voted no, the vow was torn up. And I didn't hear a cheap from that person I've referenced who actually wrote the thing who was out to the Daily Record at the time. And now mysteriously has emerged as working for the Scottish National Party. Well, you, you pardon me of thinking perhaps with 40 years' experience, 20 years as leader, uh, I probably know the Scottish National Party a bit better than the erstwhile editor of the Daily Record. So when I read his tweets and uh, impressions of how interested he is and committed he is to the SNP, and well, what I think to myself is I write. Uh, so the SNP is not the embodiment of the national movement of Scotland. That was a mistake I made. I don't intend to make it again. And the cause of independence will be strengthened if there are a number of parties arguing independence from a number of points of view, comprising that supermajority, which actually has a chance of facing down Boris Johnson, as I had to face down David Cameron in 2012. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting hearing you say that and, and characterising it as a, as a mistake, um, Alec. And you, you probably saw you were getting lots of nods from me and Val as you were saying it. And, you know, I, I, everyone voted yes in 2014. I mean, we remember what it felt when we woke up the next morning and, you know, don't, don't want that to, to happen again. So... Look, can I just, um, I know Val's got a question that she's going to be asking in a minute, but before we do that, the, the polling, can we just talk a bit about the polling? So I must admit, if we'd been talking to you last night instead of today, um, you know, I, I would have been saying to you quite straightforwardly, look, the polling returns are not looking very rosy for you, but there has been this panel base out, well, it's it was out today, but it goes up to the 12th of April, which has got Alaba on six percent and actually the previous panel based poll which was back in the first of april also had alaba on six percent so maybe there's a wee bit of a something going on there but you know it's there and that gets you to even though that hasn't gone up over the 12 days actually that does get alaba on the cusp of what's needed to get list seats um so but it's still a big ask, isn't it? I mean, you said at the beginning, this is your third anniversary because um, you're three weeks in and there's only another three weeks left. Have you maybe left it too late in launching Alba? No, no, not at all. Uh, I had an auntie, you know, back in Livgate, back in the day. And every time I spoke to Auntie Abby about independence, she'd say, we're not ready yet, son. Uh, and she was a wonderful woman, a great auntie to have. Uh, she fed me lucasade <laughs> and beans and toast whenever I wanted it. But in terms of independence, she always said, Auntie Abby said, we're not ready yet, son. Uh, now, there is a streak of pessimism, imbued pessimism in the Scottish character. But there's also a streak of uh, hopeful optimism. This is not difficult. This is arithmetic. If half of the SNP list votes vote for Alaba, then all 32 Alaba candidates will be elected. That is what will happen arithmetically. And the loss of SNP seats will be next to nothing. In most regions of Scotland, nothing at all. In the northeast of Scotland, in central Scotland, in Lothian, in Glasgow, nothing at all will be lost for the SNP. Everything will be gained for Alaba. 
And the more seats that Aleppo have, the more urgent will become the cause and quest for independence. Uh, therefore, it's in the people's hands. There is very little, if nothing, to lose. There is everything to gain. Uh, and therefore, is it too late? No, it's not. It's just a matter of getting that message across. Right now, my estimation is about 20% of the former SNP list votes are going to vote for Aleppo. And the only reason it's at 20% is the other ones don't know about it. I think we'll get that to 50% in three weeks' time as we get that message across. This is a three-line conversion. Well, I'm saying to folk in the broth, and we canvassed it last uh, Thursday night. I said, one, 137,000 SNP votes got nothing. Two, if half of you switch to Alapa, all four of us will be elected. And three, when we are elected, we're pushing forward on an immediate independence agenda with a sense of urgency. It's a three-line conversion. And I'm telling you, more than half of previous SNP voters, some of whom a bit disillusioned, it would have to be said in the broth, some of whom had tinkered with other parties because of the European issue, more than 50% said, right, we're switching to Alaba. So that is the message to get across. We get it across. We're cooking with gas and we'll take some stopping. Yeah. Let me ask you, you touched on media there, you touched, you mentioned former editor of the Daily Record into an interview you were doing on LBC with Ian Dale earlier this, earlier this evening. We're recording this interview on Wednesday evening for Friday's programme. And I noticed that um, you mentioned the fact yeah. that you were glad to be on LBC because um, you weren't getting access to other um, media, I, I wonder if you'd like to comment on that. I didn't catch all of that. It's the same, Pato. The question it, is about, about you, the current um, lack of coverage that you'd oh, yeah, yeah, sure. permitted on the media. That was what I was trying okay, to say. That, okay, that's the bit that I didn't hear. So, well, okay, if I was to say what's the single biggest obstacle in this campaign, it would be BBC Scotland, right? And I'm not surprised, of course, because... Uh, Incidentally, <laughs> the BBC is one of the very, very few interviews they've deigned to give Alipa over the course of this campaign. Asked me if they thought that President Putin had interfered in the, in the referendum in Scotland in 2014. Actually, President Putin was invited by David Cameron to intervene on the no side in 2014 and declined. Now, I don't know if he did or didn't, but uh, I think the evidence is he didn't. But I do know the BBC intervened in the 2014 referendum and the high hegens in the BBC were part of the no campaign as far as I'm concerned. So I won't be lectured by a state broadcaster like the BBC in the pocket of the British establishment eh, about who or who didn't intervene in an election. And of course, the blackout by the BBC of Alapa in this campaign is not just a major problem for us, it's a major problem for democracy. These people have no regard in the slightest for Scottish democracy. And anybody who tells me that the BBC is anything other than an instrument of the British state cannot have looked at the record in Scottish politics in recent history. Now, let me just paraphrase that by saying I am not claiming that every BBC journalist is a signed up British state operative. That is not my claim. And I'm sure there are many fine, estimable people work for the BBC. And I'm sure that many people who used to work for the BBC, and I know some of them, some of them are my close friends think the BBC is an absolute disgrace. But what I am saying to you is that the BBC as an institution operates as a state broadcaster. And anybody who doesn't understand that that state broadcaster is a total and complete enemy of Scottish independence has not looked at the history. 
of the last few years. So yes, it is a problem to be excluded from debates. And SDV should also be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. I know SDV journalists are thoroughly ashamed of the station they work for in keeping Arafa out of the debate last night, for example. But I've got to say, the more people catch on to what's going on in the BBC and SDV, then and there's almost a thing in Scotland about, you know, somebody once said, and Scotland's tombstone will be in case the words, it's no fair. <laughs> and if people catch on to it no being fair, then who knows, at grassroots, I think it will give Arafa a boost. And the last thing I say about it, I did the international press conference today. I had 104 journalists from around the world, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, the Washington Post, the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. All these people turn up to listen to the Arafa message and the message about independence for Scotland. But the BBC and STV won't give Arafa an airing, which just about sums up their narrow-minded provincialism as well as the lack of appreciation for fairness and balance in politics. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And um, one of the things that would be good to get sorted after we're independent is to, you know, do something to set up a public broadcaster system um, and the newspapers as well, actually, that's a lot fairer than it is at, at the moment. Can um, we make the last question? I've been told that I've got a campaign conference to go to. <laughs> oh, OK, yeah. Well, I think this is the last question. Val's got some last words, but the last question I had was, it's, Look, the three of us in this conversation were all in the over sixty-five bracket. Sorry, I've given that. I've given that away. I've given that away now, um, uh, uh, Alec. Bringing older voters like ourselves, right, round to yes would push up the yes majority and and maybe also give it an added stability because we are we go and vote. What What do you think would convince more of us? Well, it hasn't escaped my attention, which is one of the reasons why Arafa will be debating our pensions policy this coming Saturday at our second policy conference. It's one of the priority policy initiatives we're making in this campaign. Uh, and I don't have to tell you there are many key issues to be addressed in pension provision, not least the WASPI women, but many other uh, issues as well. But I think Arafa appreciates that, uh, <laughs> that well, two things. One about fairness and justice in terms of how people are treated in society. Uh, but secondly, one of the great cards that older folk have uh, is that they have a high propensity to vote. And it's uh, ill behold the political party that doesn't appreciate that or the independence movement that doesn't appreciate that. And I think you'll find that Alpha has every understanding of the importance of making sure that people know what our policies with regard to pensions and the treatment of people across society are. And we intend to make a start on that this coming Saturday. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your precious time, because I know that you're very busy and we'd like to thank you on behalf of Indie Live Radio for doing the interview. Um, this is a momentous time in Scottish politics and we'll be keeping close track of developments between now and the 6th of May. And we just, I'd just like to finish off by saying that here at Indie Live Radio, we believe that all independent supporters, regardless of party allegiances, should be working as hard as we can towards the shared goal of an independent Scotland. And we think it's even more urgently needed than ever in the face of a UK Tory government mounting sustained attacks on our Scottish Parliament. And we would like to thank you very much for your time, Alex Salmond. Thank you. Well, a, a great pleasure. And thank you to you both. And after many, many interviews today, 
And I can absolutely say that this was a highlight of my day. And I thank you both. Well, thank you for coming, Alex. Good to talk to you. Good luck going forward. In life, radio.